Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, everyone. This is the Nonprofit <coughs> Exchange with Hugh Ballou and Russell Dennis. Russ, how's it out there in Colorado today? Slightly overcast, but warming up, and we're rolling into spring. Spring has sprung. And we're sitting here in these um, old mountains in Virginia. You know, there's smooth mountains, and they got the, the young ones like you got. So we're, we're getting some buds, some spring, and it's almost, almost time to drive out with the top down the convertible. It'll be later in the week and next week, so I'm joyful. So this is a topic today that, that you know think something about. And it will be fun interviewing our guest today. Uh, the two of us, we uh, we enjoy doing this together. This is this is Jason Lewis. He's he's uh, coming in from Yorktown, Pennsylvania. Is, is that right, Jason? Yes, York, Pennsylvania. Uh, my wife and I have been here uh, with our family for about ten years. Uh, after uh, after spending a couple of years in the D.C. area. Yep. Yeah, I would like escaping <laughs> that traffic too. Um, yeah. <laughs> so tell folks um, something about you and why you're doing this this niche with fundraising. And you got a podcast and book, so we'll get into that a little bit later. But just who is Jason Lewis and why are you doing this? Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I probably have to think back to all the way back to uh, when my wife and I first got married, and the uh, and the opportunity was presented to me. Uh, uh, my wife and I went to work for a children's home in the southwest corner of Virginia, um, and I didn't fit really well in the uh, in the direct service work, as I think a lot of fundraising professionals find themselves in. And so I was part of that cohort of uh, fundraising professionals that finds themselves in a direct service role in the nonprofit sector. And the opportunity, uh, unaware, I didn't know what fundraising was, so the opportunity to do something that I was completely unfamiliar with and unaware of was granted to me, which is a very common, very familiar path. Many people in the nonprofit sector end up in fundraising roles after first working in the program. And um, I, have found, I have found fundraising to be very meaningful work. So that's, uh, that's what I want. That's what I want for anyone who's reading my book, listening to my podcast. That's certainly what I want for them is for them to, to find fundraising to be very admirable and meaningful work. And, um, yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. You know, um, people talk about fundraising and I think that topic comes up more often than any other topic. So say a little bit about fundraising, if you will, about, what is fundraising and what are some things that make it work really well? And what are some things that prevent it from working very well? Well, fundraising, I, one of the things that a lot of people are hearing me say right now is that fundraising is in the midst of its messy adolescence. Uh, it is a young profession. So fundraising is not a profession that has been around forever. Uh, the baby boomers can be admired for, um, subsequent after this, you know, after the civil rights movement and as they became, came into the workplace and as the nonprofit sector was starting to, to grow, uh, the baby boomers championed this as a professional career track. Um, most of my peers and anyone younger now can find uh, professional training, academic programs, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. Um, uh, historically, I would say that the fundraising professional sort of uh, the fundraising profession has always struggled with uh, historically with sort of an inferiority complex and sort of almost like a used car salesman might not sort of knowing how they fit in the economy. But as the profession has matured, I think they're actually now struggling with something that you might refer to, uh, which is characteristic of, a, of, of our adolescence, which is more of like an identity crisis, because historically, you the, the fundraising profession was very much aligned with uh, professional domains such as PR, PR and marketing, advertising. And now fundraising is sort of coming into its own and having to stand on its own two feet. And um, 
that's a lot of what myself and my peers are sort of sort of as we're beginning to take the reins and, and take the take the opportunity to lead and be thought leaders in the sector. That's some of the things that we're sort of wrestling with is um, is what is exactly what does it mean to be a fundraising professional and what is it that we're doing? What is our identity in the uh, in the sector, in the sector and in the broader workplace and the broader economy? So so um, who comes to you for help for fundraising? So most of my clients tend to be smaller nonprofit organizations that are striving to raise more money and they've kind of gotten to the end of the, they're sort of at wit's end with the, uh, uh, what I would refer to as the arm's length uh, fundraising methods that are, that have, have been out there for a long time. So these are the organizations that have been deeply entrenched in direct mail. They've sort of run the course on special events. Um, they've, uh, They've certainly, maybe they've started to experiment with, with uh, what you can do online, what, uh, what various different online platforms allow them to raise money, but those things are not keeping up with what their expectations are. And, um, and then a lot of these organizations have, all, are, are, have certainly dabbled in the grant writing space and come to find out that that's not uh, working for them. And so they're, what they're realizing is, is they have this existing network of donors that have contributed to their organization over the years. And, and that maybe it's time that they learn how to engage them in more meaningful ways, learn how to take these folks out to lunch. Um, these are organizations that are paying attention to the bigger shops and realizing that there's something else going on that these bigger, more mature fundraising operations have going for them. And, uh, and, and, and they're starting to question, which is certainly one of the questions that I uh, challenge my readers to ponder in the book, um, whether or not these larger institutions that appear to be very good at fundraising, whether or not it's necessarily just size in the affluence of their constituency that's really working to their advantage, or is it that these organizations actually sort of fundamentally carry out this process very differently? Um, and, uh, and in fact, the argument that I make in my book, and certainly the argument that I make on my podcast periodically, certainly in my seminars, is that the most most mature fundraising operations are are engaging their donors at some point or another sort of beyond the uh once you've sort of reached the sort of point of diminishing returns with direct mail and special events and all those sort of arms length fundraising techniques you've got to start taking people out to lunch and raising the expectations of what these folks give to you wow so um that's a lot of stuff to ponder so, <laughs> so when people come to you, um, what speak about um, the 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 skill of the leader, the engagement of the board, uh, clearly defined strategic plan with with specific outcomes. Talk about which of those are important for you to be able to help them. Well, you know. Hugh and Russell, you know, one of the things, Hugh used the word strategic plan, for example, a lot of nonprofit organizations, unless they're, again, unless they, they have the benefit of a very mature fund, what I refer to, uh, which is an academic term I borrowed from another educator, um, this idea of a mature fundraising operation. A lot of these organizations have never gotten to the place where they have incorporated or realized that fundraising as a strategy should be incorporated into their strategic plan. So they, they have historically maybe approached fundraising as sort of something they could bolt on to things, but it wasn't incorporated and sort of interwoven into everything that they did. And so consequently, the donor, as a result, the major donor, the prospective donor, the current donor is sort of, if you will, bolted on as well. They're not, they're not incorporated into the logic of how it is we're going to carry out this mission, um, and uh, which is which is when you look at the private sector and when you look at the products that we buy and sell today in the marketplace, marketers have gotten wise to the idea that the product can now be designed in such a way where it learn, where it sells itself, where it can be designed to sell itself. And we really need to start maybe taking some of that insight about the way that we carry out our organizations and think about, okay, how do we design our organization in such a way 
where not only can we accomplish our mission, but how can our mission be compelling not only to those that we serve, but also those that enable us to serve? Um, the, you asked, Hugh, you asked about the executive directors. A lot of our executive directors have historically come into the nonprofit sector with very, uh, these are the save the world types. These are the people who, again, these are baby boomers who came out of the civil rights movement and whatever their, whatever their uh, passions were, they found a, a professional spot in which to, uh, in which to play out their, their, uh, their commitment to the world. And what has happened is, is they've realized that, you know what, this organization also has to pay the bills and keep the lights on and we have to pay employees and I'm not a fundraiser. And so they enlist the help of a fundraiser. They go out and they maybe sort of haphazardly try to enlist somebody to do it for them. And that doesn't necessarily work again, because there's fundamentally a different sort of mindset that has to be woven into how these organizations are operating. And I, I loop this all the way back to what I started with fundraising as a profession is in a messy adolescence. And, and therefore we have got to be thinking as a, as a, as a sector and as a professional group of people, okay, how are we going to transition beyond where we are today to where we're going to be in the future? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me, um, I'm going to throw it to Russell, but before I do that, um, cause I want to come back to this thread of how a fundraising professional helps educate a on what you need to be able to do a good job. But part of what people can learn is your podcast and your current book and your next book. So, um, so talk about uh, your podcast, your current book, we're on, we're on fun fundraising. And then the next one, which is, uh, I'll let you tell about that. So quickly <laughs> about those. And then I want Russell, he'll, he'll have the real hard questions. So I'll sit okay. Russell, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating you're uh, starting to sweat a little bit here. Um, so my first book, Hugh, is uh, my first, my only book. My only book is The War for Fundraising Talent. And, um, and I'm, I'm proud to say that it's the only, of, only book of its type. Um, I wanted to, what I recognized as I thought back on my professional career, uh, there's a lot of books out there that are sort of the how-to books and the tips and tricks and this is how you do it and they you know very linear thinking and um, uh, very focused on the methodologies and I thought okay our profession now as it's maturing is long overdue now for a, a critique a critique and so I wrote a critique of contemporary fundraising practice which is what the war for fundraising talent is and I make the accusation in the book that the large majority of nonprofit organizations out there, especially the smallest of ones, are addicted at an organizational level to a very cheap and shallow form of fundraising that undermines their ability to accomplish their goals. And until they ultimately sort of own up to this addiction, this organizational addiction, they're not going to make any strides in terms of how much support they're raising. The, the way in which I solved this, so the first half of the book is a heavy critique and it's hard to swallow for some folks who've never sort of taken such a critical look at their professional path. But the second half of the book, I essentially begin to, begin to, but not completely solve the problem. And that is to basically do two things, which I see to be this, the, the two sides of the same coin. And that is that fundraising professionals themselves have got to set the expectations for themselves and employers need to set the expectation for the, for their fundraisers that they need to be recognized and admired for meaningful work. But to do that, the flip side of that same coin is, is that they have to find organizations that know and understand how fundraising really works. You can't have one without the other. If, if you want to be recognized and admired for meaningful work, if you want to be doing something that at, at, at present is still in its messy adolescence as a, as a professional career path, you sure as heck better be working for an organization that knows what they're doing. And so, Hugh, the, the, the sort of the title that's floating around in my mind that I, um, I haven't officially announced, but I guess I have announced now, um, is that title of how fundraising really works. That is the term, that is the title of my seminar that I, I have a road show. We travel around the country and we do that road show. And presumably that'll be the title of the next book. 
I love it. I love it. So this war on fundraising talent I have up here, it's Thank um, you. That's a, available, that's, it's available yes. on Amazon, is it? It is. It's available on Amazon. Um, I do have uh, the large majority of my reviews are very generous reviews. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, maintaining a very high rating. Uh, so anyone who's interested should certainly go out there and see what other people are saying about the book. And um, it's, it's a relatively easy read. You know, one of my readers, Hugh and Russell, referred to it as a, um, as a pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional. And what they were basically saying is, is this is sort of a, a credo for how, how fundraisers should be thinking about their work. All right. I'm going to let Russell ask you some questions and we'll come back and you tell us a little bit about the podcast. So Russell, have at it, would you please? Well, thank you for coming again. Uh, very interesting. You know, fundraising has to be something that's in the DNA of the organization. Yep. And Haas uh, uh, Foundation did a study with Compass Point back in 2013. Yep. Uh, and you've probably seen that, but they talked about a culture of fundraising and uh, uh, trying to explain the need for this culture of fundraising is a big challenge. Yeah, I myself am not a certified fundraiser, but I'm a I'm a very uh, very practiced at relationship building and creating some systems. And so uh, when I go in and talk to people and start talking with them about strategy and bringing all of these pieces together, I think sometimes their eyes gloss over. Uh, so do you find that a lot of the people that you talk with uh, uh, really uh, are fuzzy on, on what your meaning is when you talk to them about really knowing how fundraising works? Well, Russell, I think uh, you're right. The, the Compass Point study that you're referring to, um, underdeveloped, I think is what they referred to it. Um, they, they sort of sounded the alarm on the inability for nonprofit organizations to um, fill these vacant development officer roles and then keep people in these roles. And you're right. One of the four, uh, when they summarized at the end, I think uh, culture was that number one thing on that list. But in my book, Russell, I, I make the distinction actually between what I call two. I, I actually believe that there's two cultures or two fundraising cultures playing out within organizations. And that's what I'm trying to help fundraisers who are sitting in an interview with a prospective employer and a, an employer or a board who's sort of evaluating themselves. A, a, a fundraising culture can still be very much characterized by what I call arm's length fundraising, which is this, this tendency to maintain an arm's length from their donors and therefore never allow the donor to move in close closer to the organization. And I, I tend to, I make the case in the book and I tend to, as I observe nonprofits struggling with this, I tend to think it's that in what I call the inverse relationship between growth and control by maintaining an arm's length with our donors who are oftentimes presumed to be these um, wealthy, more powerful, um, oftentimes part of a, uh, sort of a, mar uh, a majority group for us to maintain an arm's length with them prevents them from having an undue influence or, um, you know, influencing decisions that we don't want them to. And so uh, in a large part, I see that as a desire for control. Well, I think high, highly functional, highly successful fundraising is actually a function of growth. And we've got to learn how to relinquish that need for control and learn how to raise expectations of our donors and consequently not always be running around fearful that they're gonna to try to hijack our mission. Um, when we do that, we develop, you know, we develop a, a sincerity and understanding, a genuine understanding of what it is the expectations of our donors are. Um, we, become, we become better listeners. We understand how their story interweaves with our organization. And, uh, you know, the best fundraisers I've known, and certainly my best experiences in terms of raising money, have always been where I have interacted with a donor where I could raise the expectation of their level of support 
not allow them to take advantage of whatever position they were in and say, okay, we're going to paint the wall pink while you want to paint it purple. Not, you know, we're not letting them hijack. Again, we're not letting these folks hijack the mission, but allowing them, allowing ourselves and themselves to be peer to peer. We have to be on a level playing field. And I tend to think that we operate in a, an unlevel, you know, we come in with this mission and vision that sort of comes in very superior and they similarly sometimes come in with their money, which is there for, we've got to level that out um, and not be so fearful of these folks. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think there's, there's, uh, there's essentially four basic steps to building what I call a high performance nonprofit. And that fourth one is communicating the value that you bring. And value has a different language based on who you're talking to. But I don't know how many nonprofit leaders really think in terms of, hey, we're here, we don't have our hat in our hand, but we're actually providing a valuable service to society. We want partners to help us continue to make this impact. Uh, and I think that that whole notion of growth versus control uh, yeah. could be by you know how clear are the nonprofits on the value that they're actually bringing and really thinking in terms of of a partnership and, and having people trust you to maximize their return on whatever they're putting in for time talent and treasure well no Russell it sounds like you so it sounds like you interact with nonprofits very significantly and you sort of you certainly understand what they're doing if, and this is something that I sort of teed up my, my comments with when Hugh was asking me to introduce myself. If you think about the reason why nonprofit leaders come into the sector, it's oftentimes because in some way or another, they identify with those they intend to serve. And that's what I think is part of the predicament that we're in, is that we don't necessarily want to identify with these really wealthy people who can write us these really big checks. And so if I'm, a, if I'm the administrator at the local you know, school in the city who's trying to serve low-income kids, or if I'm, the, uh, you know, if I'm the gentleman who's running the soup kitchen trying to feed homeless people, there's something in who I am, you know, something in my identity that sort of helps me identify with these people. Um, and therefore, we're compelled to do what we do. That's what allows us to sort of forego compensation. And I mean, that's, that's why we chose to do this, but we've got this sort of crisis of identity because we don't want to identify with these really wealthy people who enable us to do this. Um, which is the reason why I think the fundraising profession has sort of moved beyond this inferiority. Trust me, it's a, it's a legitimate career path. I mean, anybody who's reading anything out there in terms of you can make, you go to any major metropolitan city in this country today, and you can easily make a six-figure salary raising gifts, you know, charitable gifts for nonprofit organizations. That's not, that's pretty legitimate work. We don't have an inferiority complex anymore. We've got an identity crisis because we are, if you, if you hear all the critique that's happening in the nonprofit sector right now, it's all about this possibility that, that we in some way or another are going to be overwhelmed and the donor's going to come in and we're going to have to do what the donor wants to do. Um, yeah, I think that's an identity crisis, not a uh, inferiority issue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what it, what it speaks to, and our good friend, Dr. David Gruder, another wayfinder for Cinevision, talked at length a while back. We had a podcast where we actually talked about the relationship that we have with money. Yeah. So how, how important is it for a professional fundraiser to be clear on her or his relationship with money? And then how do you gauge that when you go into an organization and help them address the relationship that some of the leaders might have with money? Yeah, I mean, you see, I mean, that. yeah, I mean, that's, and, and I briefly address that, that issue that we have with money in my book. And I certainly have a session in my, uh, uh, there's a part in my seminars where I say, okay, I want you to, I have people break up in these groups of two or three. And I say, okay, I want you to sort of unpack your, uh, your money story. 
and uh, one of the uh, one of the one of the items on the list of three is tell a story about how your mother or father interacted with money, and how does that sort of translate into the way that you see and experience the world um, as you spend money and as you save money and as you um, you know preserve money, whatever you do with money. Um, uh, and, and I think we carry into the nonprofit sector, we carry into the nonprofit sector, and then we carry into this particular line of work, these, um, these assumptions about how money works that we've never really contemplated. Um, you know, I was the son of a military, you know, an enlisted military man who never, we never had a whole lot, but we never were broke. Um, so that shaped my worldview, my economic worldview. And consequently, I'm sure there's plenty of instances where I'm sitting there having an interaction with a major donor. And, uh, and my, you know, my, my financial experiences in life certainly speak, uh, you know, influence how I react to those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, uh, and I know these are probably some challenging uh, uh, conversations. Do you find when you go into some of these uh, nonprofit agencies that that call you to start talking about maybe uh, getting some work done on on uh, improving uh, their fundraising? Uh, do you do you find that you run into uh, leaders that have significant challenges, and do you meet a lot of resistance? when you do run into these leaders and how, how do you cope with that resistance or maybe uh, point it out in a way that doesn't agitate or alienate them? Right. Well, it's, uh, it's, um, it has definitely been a sort of a better be, learning how to better serve my clients and understand who my clients are has always been my, in terms of consulting work has always been my challenge. It's not my ability to, interact with the donor with, you know, the ability to sit at the lunch table with a major donor alongside my client or something. Um, but it is, you know, and, and it's just sort of a carry on, you know, it's a continuation of your comment about the money story, knowing how to understand the way that my client knows and sees the world, how they see their relationship with the donor. Um, there's oftentimes this desire for control. There's, money issues there's a fear component um there's uh there's a lot of uh naive assumptions about what the donor really wants um a lot of times these 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 nonprofit leaders have spent years if not decades trying to shape and adapt and mold themselves in order to better serve the people that they're trying to serve only to be told by a guy like me now you've got to adapt in, in order to meet the needs of a person who's got all this affluence and wealth. I mean, that's the last thing in the world they want to hear is, oh my gosh, I've got to be, I've got to be adaptable for somebody who shouldn't need that sort of adaptability, you know, shouldn't need that sort of courtesy. Um, and, uh, and so stewarding those relationships can be very problematic. Um, I, 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 I tend to, uh, you know, I rely on personality assessments to just uh, sort of think through, okay, how am I lining up with that particular client? And then I use those same personality assessments to help them understand who they are in relationship to the personalities of their donors. Um, Self-awareness self aware, self is certainly the first place you start. That's lacking a lot of leaders, Russell, and I find. So, Russell, we've fun surfaced something here. The um, can I, I want to butt in uh, the the um, adapt adapting. That sounds scary. Would you dig into that a little bit? You like me? Or are you asking Russell or me? Uh, you. I was telling. I was apologizing for interrupting him, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but not really. He's used to it. <laughs> so the the adapting doesn't mean changing your values or what you're doing. So say a little about, about how that works and what it's like. Yeah, so I think the best way, so I was working with a client, Hugh, last year. Um, and and I, I was working, it was a private school client. And one of the things that I had to explain to them that they found to be very helpful 
is that oftentimes when we talk about marketing, so this is actually insights that come from marketing that translate very well to, uh, to fundraising. A lot of people or are, are approach, approach marketing through what's called a, uh, a product orientation. So they're very focused on the product itself. So say for instance, in a private school, they're very oriented towards the, the customer who's buying that particular product. Um, what marketers will tell you is that in order to expand your business, you have to shift from a product orientation, which is to say that you have to stop focusing so much on selling the product and you have to learn how to have a market orientation, which means you have to, you don't change your product. You don't, you don't change the cheeseburger. The cheeseburger stays the, the same, but you've got to understand that different markets, different customers are going to buy different features on that cheeseburger very differently. And so, for instance, when McDonald's goes into a different country, they're still selling, relatively still selling, with relative consistency, they're still selling the same Big Mac, but they're actually going to understand that particular Chinese culture or a, a different culture in such a way where they point out particular features of that Big Mac differently than they would you or me as Americans. And that's the same way it works with fundraising. We don't have to change our mission. We just have to know and understand that there's different components, different parts of what it is we're doing um, that appeal to a particular market or a particular donor category differently than it does another. Kate, uh, and then using an example. So in a private school setting, oftentimes your donor prospect is not your parent. It's not your tuition paying parent, it's your grandparent. But your grandparent is not generally interested in a whole lot more other than what's going to be a benefit my, my granddaughter in second grade. They don't really care about a lot of the other things that tuition-paying parents are thinking about right there in that moment. And so you've got to understand that constituency very differently. That doesn't mean you change the cheeseburger. You're not going to sell a different cheeseburger. You just have to understand that customer differently. Um, yeah. That's that adapt that gets back to that adaptability. So it's the ability to literally sort of think differently to adapt to a different customer can be very diff difficult. Well, Russell and I talk to people about uh, their messaging, their scripts, and Russell has a saying that a confused mind says no. Uh, you see the track I'm on, Russ, about clarifying, and this helped a lot, Jason. So, Russell, am I making sense? Perfectly, perfectly. You know, I have, uh, you know, and I've been involved in, and that was sort of uh, my early education into trying to work with uh, an entity to get resources. Uh, we find ourselves chasing money very frequently. And uh, by that, I mean, we're looking at something that, hey, this looks like an attractive pot of money that we can go for. And we, instead of being true to what it is that we're trying to accomplish, we try to fit ourselves to the desires of the fundraising. And that's, that was a very common problem for me back then. And, uh, and I think that some organizations still go through that. Um, and the one thing I think that's very scary for organizations is this idea of backing off of a specific piece of funding because they need it. Uh, so when is the most appropriate time to say no? And how do you have that discussion with a, uh, an entity that's seeking money? Before I answer, I'd be delighted to answer that question, but Russell, I want to sort of piggyback on your comment there a few minutes ago. One of the great ironies about the nonprofit sector and this notion of chasing after money is that a lot of the organizations that are doing what they do, the mission statement that they have, the reason why we're in the business of doing what we are doing is because somebody was chasing after money. You know, the marketplace was chasing after money. And there are people in a capitalistic society that get forgotten when we're, when we're trying to, you know, um, grow a, a, a country, when we're trying to do the things that we do there are people that get forgotten in a society that is driven largely by capitalism. I don't want to have a, I don't want to pick on capitalism, but 
what I'm getting at is there's a great deal of irony in sort of this utilitarian sort of ethic that says, hey, if it works, let's raise money that way. When in fact, it is the utilitarian sort of mindset that's actually why we exist, because people get forgotten, they get overlooked, they get marginalized. And that's why our that's why we do what we do. And we can't, we can't sort of flip that ethic over and say, hey, we're going to use that utilitarian sort of mindset. Hey, you know, if it works, we're going to go do it for our donors. If that's the same reason why, you know, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I don't want to get on that, on that. Uh, I don't know if you guys talk ethics on this show, but uh, I could certainly get on that. Band. So, so Russell, remind me your question, the, where you were going with that question before I, uh, I grabbed hold of that one. <laughs> Well, you know, where I was really going with that is, is that uh, oftentimes, you know, there, there's a uh, a lack of appreciation, as it were, within the organization for the value of the impact that they're actually bringing. That could be for a number of reasons around that relationship around money. But they lose sight of their own DNA and what they're about and who they're serving uh, and start stretching themselves in, in ways that move away from their core strengths to satisfy requirements to get a specific pocket of money, whether that's from a, a donor or from a, a, a foundation or a government agency. And, uh, you know, there, there are probably times when they're approaching a source that for a number of reasons might not be in alignment with who they are. And uh, there's the dilemma of should we take this money or and and risk being pulled off track or should we say no? And then how do you have that conversation about when it's probably more appropriate to say no? Yeah, they tend to, you know, there's a, uh, so there's some recent statistics when they look back on 2018 and this trend, this trend is not particular, this trend is not particularly new. But one of the trends that is scaring a lot of the nonprofit sector, and I just heard this from a colleague of mine just this morning that I was talking to, but set, uh, seven per, the giving from new donors is down 7% and giving from um, uh, renewed new donors. So these would be the donors that give in the first year for the first time, that, that number is down 7%. And then that same category of donors that gives in the subsequent year is down about 14%. And that's alarming for most of the nonprofit sector. But what I, what my, my tendency to look at that data, and I haven't, I haven't dug deep into that information to sort of confirm the validity so much of my assumption. But I think what you're actually seeing is, is you're actually seeing a much more deliberate and intentional donor who's saying, I'm not going to spread my generosity across all these, you know, sort of a smorgasbord of nonprofit organizations. And I'm going to be more intentional about who I'm giving to. Um, And I think it's changing the dynamics of what's going to actually work and not work. And I think it's going to prevent us from being able to do all this fundraising at, at what I referred to as an arm's length, which kind of gets to your, which gets to your comment. If we don't learn how to engage with these individuals and incorporate them more intimately, more closely to what it is we're doing, um, our organizations may not survive. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the nonprofit sector has not stopped growing. I don't think it's going to stop growing as our society continues to be more and more pluralistic, which is to say that more and more individuals, I'm teaching a, a college course right now to a bunch of nonprofit students. As our society becomes, you know, as, as our identities become more and more unique, as we all recognize that we're all unique, you're going to have people that are going to spring up and say, okay, I'm going to advocate and therefore raise money for my particular identity group is perfectly fine. You can do that if you'd like to do that. A free society, do that. But what that also means is that there's going to be more people grabbing at the dot, the, you know, the limited charitable dollars that happen to be out there. Um, and it's going to be those organizations that get really good at this that are ultimately going to sort of win the day and be able to advocate for their, um, whatever their cause happens to be. 
Um, yeah. We're on the, the, the last 20 minutes of the hour, so I want to get a couple of topics in. Um, people will find a lot of data on your podcast, and I think they can go and see the topics for themselves. It's on um, lewisfundraising.com. There's a podcast link. Yes, and, there is. Um, that podcast is, who are you talking to on that podcast? Yeah, so Hugh, I designed that podcast to, uh, I, I, this loops back to what I said earlier. I think the fundraising profession um, is in a messy adolescence. And uh, therefore, uh, if you think about adolescence, uh, adolescence is that time period where we, we as young people like to ask questions. And so my podcast, every one of my podcasts begins with a title that is a question. So, uh, for instance, the, the one that broadcast today, the question is, is, you know, what is that scary? What was that scary trend that we're all afraid of for 28 from that sort of resulted from 2018? Uh, uh, but my guest, Hugh, my guests on the show are generally nonprofit leaders or fundraising professionals themselves. And we're not really after a uh, we're not really seeking after answers, but we're sitting, you know, we're contemplating and wrestling with some of these, these bigger questions for this maturing profession. Well, who's it for? Who's the podcast? Who, who, who would listen? Front, who to? Who's listening? Yes. I'm sorry. Frontline front fundraising professionals. Yes. The, 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 my audience, my intended audience for that is primarily the frontline fundraiser. Um, ideally, you know, the person, the people I get most excited when I hear them listening here, when they reach out to me and they say they're listening, it's somebody who's in a small shop. There's a woman, for instance, that I've gotten to know over the last year who's in Chicago. She's in a small nonprofit organization. She listens to the podcast every week. Um, there's another woman in Detroit who similarly alerts me when she's heard the podcast. These are both women who are frontline fundraisers in the trenches doing the work wanting to do meaningful work and that's what they listen to so i for these nonprofit leaders that are listening here when they tune in your podcast or read your book can they learn things about hiring a, a, a professional fundraiser yes and for so if you're an executive director so if you were an executive director hugh if you and russell were were uh, or if you were board members I would expect that the podcast would be intriguing to you, not so much because you yourselves are fundraisers, but because the types of people that I'm inviting on the show are oftentimes the types of people that I want employed in shops that want to do this really well. Okay. So as, For, as, yeah. as we're teaching nonprofits, part of our strategy, um, we're identifying who that hamburger is for, who, you know, what is, makes that hamburger set itself aside from all other hamburgers. Yeah. And, you know, why people, you know, there's, we give value to people. So they buy our hamburger. Yeah. And so, but, but part of it also is how do we expand our, our reach in terms of where the money comes from? And you know, we identify eight primary sources that any, any um, organization can access and like you to respond to these a little bit or, or these areas that you and your colleagues work in, we've identified eight and there's two others that are, are not as common, but donations, sponsorships, grants, earned business income, uh, Amazon books, you know, membership right. subscriptions, um, events, sometimes events lose money, but events is publicity, but it's also in kind donations don't make you money. They save you money. Planned giving, um, most of them do a really poor job of even talking about planned giving. And then what I call partner money, like churches, uh, Rotary Foundation, uh -huh. uh, right. give money because they want to support a food bank or a free clinic, and you you do it. They don't do it. So it's it's not really a, a donation or a sponsorship. I call it partner money. Then if you do have money in an endowment fund, you have uh, interest income, and sometimes you have real estate. It's donated or you got it and you make money from the real estate. So are um, you have any to add to those categories or prioritizing any of those? Or I, I teach people that you need multiple sources to have ultimate regularity of income and sustainability of income. Yeah, Hugh, I think what I would, so um, generally speaking, I'm speaking to a small nonprofit organization, a smaller shop that has one development officer. And, um, 
a lot of those diversification, I advocate for, I would certainly advocate for organizations to take advantage of all of those various streams of revenue for their, you know, for their organizations. However, what I also encourage that one development officer to recognize is that in almost all of those cases, with the exception of maybe the Amazon, um, what is the Amazon smile money you're talking, you referenced, I think. Um, unless, of course, we were able to get a meeting with Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um, in all of those cases, there is a living, breathing human being that, you, that has to write a check to your organization, be it a corporation, be it a foundation, be it an individual, whatever that channel or method you're using, be it a planned gift. All of those methods begin with an individual sitting at a desk writing a check and handing it to your organization. And I want development officers to focus on knowing who that individual is mm. and not so much focusing on the, med, the stream, right? I mean, private foundations are one thing, individuals are another, grants are another. So we kind of get fascinated with the stream, the, the sort of the, the way the transaction occurs, where the money is being held. We draw a lot of assumptions as if that's what, you know, what the information we draw a lot of assumptions as if there's a lot of complexity about how that plays out. When in fact, the complexity is really in that human being who's sitting there writing that check. If he or she wants to sign that check and hand it over to your organization, it really doesn't matter what, what, what structure that money's being held in. And if fundraisers don't recognize that, okay, I need to know Mr. or Mrs. Smith who runs that foundation or who can give me that planned gift, Ultimately, they're not getting very far. Um, and by knowing who that person is, I, I refer to in my book is what's called an assigned list. It's just the same practice that major gifts officers use in large institutions. There's a human capacity of about 150 people that you can have those meaningful relationships with. So I don't, I'm not so much, I don't get hung up on how many, I don't get hung up on what sort of channels that money's coming through. Just don't have so many of those sources on your list that you can't engage with any of them in a meaningful way. Does that make sense? That makes a really good point. Cause we, uh, it's a personal commitment and a personal, yeah. relate. Um, we also, yeah. that the money comes as a result of uh, ROR return on relationship. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've raised a significant, in my hometown here, I've raised a significant amount of money from individuals who could have given to, given to my organ, the organization I was working for. They could have opted to give in, give, given to the organization I was working for at the time through a private foundation, um, a corporate gift, the company they own, a personal gift, or they certainly could have given us a planned, you know, a gift, a planned, you know, some sort of a deferred gift. So a lot of times it's that one relationship that represents a whole, um, the wealthier an individual, the more affluent an individual is, the more likely they can probably have influence in any number of those, those channels. Love it. Russell, let you have another go at a question before we do our sponsor moment and sign off here. Yeah, and it is. This diversity of sources uh, should be limited to what you can do well so that you don't right, make a right. mess of it. Yeah, right. And, uh, and it is. My approach is not so much on methods as it is on relationships because it's, it's easier to apply the tools, but it's really working on identifying who those customers are. The nonprofits have a really diverse customer set. You have people that actually get the services. You've got multiple people that pay for them. And so finding out what's valuable to them uh, and what to, how, how to speak their language uh, to communicate that value you bring is critical. And you need to do that in a way that doesn't take you away from who you are. So uh, there are a lot of, a lot of moving parts to this. And, and, uh, you know, earlier, one of the things you had said that kind of stuck in my mind was the the uh, cheap and shallow fundraising practices. Right. Or, you know, I, I, I kind of view that as uh, the easy payoff for the low-hanging fruit. And, and uh, 
uh, how common is it for people to shoot themselves in the foot that way? And, and what's the best way to steer them away from that? Well, I just, so on my podcast, um, I just had a guest, I think this was number 57 or 58. I had uh, a group of two women that work for the Sick Kids Foundation, the, the hospital, the big hospital in Toronto. And um, they told a case study of a donor who was giving a corporate gift of $100 a month, $100 a month. And they tell that the way the story goes, and I don't want, I won't unpack the whole story, but your listeners can certainly go check this out and I can certainly send you a link. But essentially the donor goes from a $100 a month donation that would not, uh, would not have otherwise hit their radar. This is just a monthly donor, $100. They're not thinking much about it. Within a year's time, this donor is now giving $2,000 a month for 10 months. Once that gift hits their radar, this donor moves to a level of, um, gives, ends, up giving, ends up committing to a million dollars over five years. And I think the last sort of significant commitment they got, because this is the, the way the case, story, the case study goes, is, um, is the donor has committed to $6.5 million. And we're talking about a very short period of time. We're not talking about a lifetime of gifts. We're talking about a donor that in a very short period of time has gone from $100 a month to $6.5 million. And, what, and the reason this woman, these two women are sharing this story with me, Russell, is because they're stepping, they're sitting back and they're kind of looking at their database and thinking, how many of these $100 donors are, in, are within our midst, Right. How much opportunity exists? You know, it's like looking for the needle in a haystack, but how much is there? And can we take on the risk to explore that? You know, it kind of gets back to this notion of growth versus control. You know, if you think about these methodologies that we use, these methods that we like to use, the diversified methods, they tend to make us feel very in control but you sit down and have lunch with any one of those people, the chairman of the board at a tr you know, trustee individual ask for a planned gift. Any one of those things tend to be very growth oriented, not, uh, not don't make you feel very in control. So, um, yeah. Wow. I could go all day and you guys could probably keep <laughs> me going. So. Well, you know, obviously you're an expert on a lot of facets of this topic. And I know that um, some folks come to you that aren't really yet fundable. And so there's some structure to be built. And you've given us a lot of really good things to talk about. Uh, we, we talk about our sponsors. And then we um, give you a chance to have a closing thought for our listeners. Uh, what, what do they need to know? What would you challenge them to do? Or what is a tip that you want to leave people with as a parting thought? And we want to encourage people to go to Lewis Fundraising, L-E-W-I-S, fundraising.com. You'll see the book there. And I, I discovered today there's a free um, fundraising toolkit you offer people, which is yeah. a, about PDF they can download and study. Yes. And yes. Um, so uh, anything else that people find when they go to your website besides your podcast and your book and your toolkit? No, that toolkit, you know, I appreciate, Hugh, that you brought up that toolkit. So that essentially reflects a philosophy. Um, if, you, if you were in my seminar, we, we print those cards that are in that toolkit. That we print them on heavy card stock. It's essentially a philosophy of fundraising on four cards. And, um, and it's designed to empower fundraising professionals to be able to sort of know and understand how fundraising really works. Essentially, those are the tools that will outline this, 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 few, this next book that I'm talking about. Um, and they'll also, they'll also find your events, your upcoming events on the website. Yes, so. yes, certainly. We have an event calendar. Um, I've also got some uh, uh, deliberate practices downloads if they want to uh, think about some, you know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to improve your expertise in this particular area, they can download some of that. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of things on there. Great. And, um, our, um, 
Our guest coming up next on the next podcast, Russell, is uh, an expert, Hank Robinson. He happens to be listening in on this this uh, session, but Hank um, is a Google Grants expert. How to get traffic to your website, and uh, actually, he's more than that. We, you know, my acronym for hits is uh, how idiots track success. We don't care how many people come; we care how many people do something. So there's a yep. whole there's a whole conversion piece there. So um, we'll have a very active conversation on the next episode of the Nonprofit Exchange with Hank. Thank you very much, Hank, for that that piece. Um, and our sponsor is Word Sprint. Word Sprint's a printing house. They're a mailing house. They're a marketing agency. It's top of mind marketing. You have donors. You want to make sure they stay donors. You want to put something in their hand at a regular rhythm that's targeted to that person with a message about what's happened with their donation. Um, it's, it's message, message, message. Then you ask. So attrition and donors, we need to get a chance to talk about that. But the attrition factor with donors um, can happen because they haven't heard from you until the next year or say, hey, give us more money. And they don't know what you did with the last money. <laughs> and um, WordSprint's been doing research for two decades. And the giving, giving chart, the, the, ch the, the chart goes up, up, up. The graph goes up, up. Because we're working on this return on relationship. We're letting people know what good you're doing. And as I said earlier in this podcast, income for any kind of business. This is a nonprofit for-purpose enterprise. We generate income by providing value. And the value that our nonprofit organizations offer the world is immense. We're just not very good at talking about it. So that's a, <laughs> we've had uh, people in here about creating your story. Um, and if you want to upgrade your skills, go to the Center Vision Leadership Community and get my newest podcast, 31 Days to Becoming a Better Leader. Because your organization cannot perform at any higher level than you can lead it. So working on yourself is an ongoing, never-ending joy of continuing to grow your skills. So you can go to betterleader.me, betterleader, B-E-T-T-R, betterleader, and that's who me, dot me. So go there, we'll take you to the page with the podcast. And by the way, click the join button, and you can join for free, and you get my $100 Five Pillars of Success program for free, just for joining the community. And then if you don't like the community, you can get out. But there's lots of other things, like the history of these podcasts for four years with great people like Jason Lewis. So Jason, I'm going to throw it to you for a quick closing tip, closing thought, and then Russell takes us to the top of the hour and closes out. This is a very helpful session, so thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, my uh, just my closing tip is just it's just that it's the, it's the two sides of that coin that I talked about earlier. Um, if fundraising professionals want to be recognized and admired for meaningful work, if fundraisers want to be recognized and admired for meaningful work, they're going to have to work for organizations that know and understand how fundraising really works. Um, fundraising professionals need to be working for organizations that have a shared understanding of how fundraising really works. And you put those two together, you have a good, you have a good opportunity there and you will, uh, you'll see a lot of success. Otherwise you probably need to keep looking, uh, and, uh, and find an organization that, that matches that. Jason Lewis, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I'm now on your book, which I'll be writing a review on. And I'll subscribe to your podcast because uh, you can never learn too much. I love to, to plug in the other resources that. And here at Center Vision, that's part of the conversations that we're having with people is to understand their DNA and build their fundraising into strategy. And so that's the key. And once it becomes a part of your DNA and who you are, you can pull the trigger on it and uh, actually do a better job of it. And, uh, increase that level of comfort with it. So I'm looking forward to the next book. So uh, okay. please, please let us know when that comes out. I'm looking forward to reading the War for Fundraising Talent, and uh, that that uh, I'm finding that that people are having a hard time getting that talent because good yep. fundraising pro has worked their weight in gold, and yep. the smaller organizations can't afford that. So. 
It's right. spreading that out across the culture so that they can maximize that use and not put all the pressure on that fundraising professional. So that's a whole nother discussion. We'll cover it at some upcoming Center Vision events. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you all who come to join us, our friends out on Facebook and those who come to join us every week where we talk to brilliant people like Jason. Keep making that difference that you're making out there and remember that you're bringing a remarkable amount of value and impact. So uh, make sure that you continue to do that, continue to work on yourself. Join the Center Vision community and do that right here. We will be here next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Until then, keep making a difference and thank you for showing up regularly. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.